0: So, uh today I don't uh, want you to open your Bibles to a specific passage of Scripture because there's a bunch of them, and I put them on the screen, and that's going to relieve you a little bit. This is the third Sunday of Advent. We have the three candles lit, and you know, those different candles mean different things in different times and different traditions. I can remember a number of years ago when I said to Laurel, I'm renaming the candles, and she kind of thought I was renaming really the but that's not the case at all. Um, and uh, the candle that we're looking at this morning, I'm calling the proclamation candle because we're talking about... God coming to proclaim. So you don't have, you're welcome to look up these passages in the Bible if you want, but there's no way you'll keep up, I don't think. And that's why I put them on the screen for you this morning. So if I said to you this, if I said, God came to love, you'd probably know what I mean. I mean, after all, we just talked about that um, last week, if you were here, and you know that Christ uh, loves us, that God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So we get that. God came to love. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about God coming to reach, that God came to reach us. And there's an old Christmas carol that says, out of the ivory palaces of heaven, into this world of woe, he came so that he could connect with us, so he could reach us. Um, But if I said to you this, if I said, God came to proclaim, what would you think I was talking about? You might have a variety of different kind of responses to that, but you might say, I'm not really sure exactly what he came to proclaim or why he felt like he had to come and tell us something. That's what I want to talk to you about today. This past Thursday evening, we were gathered together for men's Bible study. There's anywhere between 10 and 15 or 20 of us almost that get together every Thursday night and have a Bible study together. And we were in John chapter six, we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, where God takes uh, five loaves and two or three fishes and multiplies them to feed 5,000 plus women and children, a lot of people. Matt Molesky was there and Matt brought with him, he was supposed to bring the food that night and uh, usually we have pizza or something like that. Matt brought with him a sack of uh, rolls that he bought at the store and a tin of sardines and said, have at it, gentlemen. Yeah, so, and then he said, no, nah, I brought the pizza and we knew he brought the pizza uh, that as well. Five loaves, two fishes. How do you feed 5,000 with that? As we were talking about that and we were working through that, I shared with them a crazy interpretation of that passage and as I shared it with them, I could tell some of them were ticked. I was the first time I heard it. Like that just ticks me off that somebody made up that false interpretation, a rethinking that actually what I shared with them, I'm not gonna share with you today because I don't want you to be mad at me. But what I shared with them takes away the miracle. It just takes away the miracle and it, and it kind of makes Jesus into nothing more than a good guy who had a clever idea. <coughs> That's a phrase worth thinking about. False teaching. A lot of it makes Jesus into nothing more than a good guy with a clever idea. And he is much more than that. This idea that Jesus is a good guy with a good idea has uh, been around for a long time. It's been happening since the time Jesus walked the earth. He was here on earth, and the religious leadership was constantly taking him to task over his identity. Who are you? Who are you? And he told them, I am God in the flesh. I am the Son of God. I am the anointed one. I am the Holy One. I'm God. And it was one of the excuses they used actually to put him to death. When you're reading about the crucifixion of Jesus in John 19, the Jewish leaders said, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. They wanted Jesus to be something less than that way back then. And it is even so today. I remember when I was a teenager, I kind of picked up on this along the way that people tend to like Jesus' teaching. I mean, what's not to like about judge not lest ye be judged? I can get around that. Yeah, that's a good thing. And love your neighbor as yourself and turn the other cheek. Those are good pieces of counsel. And do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what profit is it if a man gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's good teaching. I can get around that. Yeah, great concepts. Let's think about it for a minute. Those kind of concepts are something that anyone could say? Any religious leader would say those and has said those very kinds of things. From Confucius to Buddha to Muhammad, those kinds of concepts are woven into any religion that a clever person could come up with. They're safe things to say. They're acceptable things to say. They're politically correct things to say. And they won't get you crucified. Society likes the Jesus who is a good teacher. Society likes the Jesus who is an ethicist. He's all about ethics. They like him being a moral philosopher, but that is not who Jesus is. The Bible says that he's much larger than that. We're coming into the Advent season, and we're talking about what God can do, what he has done, and what he has for us to do. He came to reach. He came to love. Today, we're talking about the second on the list there. He came to proclaim. He came to proclaim, and our Christmas carols speak of that. For example, Oh, little town of Bethlehem says, the morning starts together, proclaim the holy birth. But as I was preparing for this message, I realized that that proclamation was not limited to the little town of Bethlehem. In fact, it is throughout the gospels, the books of the Bible that tell us about Jesus' life. His identity, who he is, why he was here comes over and over and over again. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, I'm going to preach a different kind of sermon. Usually I have you in your Bibles, have a lot of illustrations, but what I'm going to do today is I intend to show you the overwhelming biblical evidence of Jesus proclaiming his identity. And so you're going to think this guy is the worst PowerPoint person I ever saw in my life. His PowerPoint slides are just covered with text, but that's intentional because I want to show you what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And honestly, I'm just going to let the Bible speak for itself for most of the sermon. I'm going to begin by noting that you'd almost have to be blind to miss the fact, to miss the pattern of the proclamation at Jesus' birth. I mean, first of all, an angel proclaims Jesus' birth to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, the scripture says, In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So the angel's clearly saying there's a big event coming. There's an important person coming. Someone special is about to be born. The son of the most high God is going to come and he will have an eternal kingdom, an eternal reign. The advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. The angel brings a proclamation to Mary and an angel proclaims the birth of, to Joseph. Joseph is her fiance. He learns about her condition and considers breaking the engagement. We talked about that last week. But after he'd considered this, the scripture says an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Think about that phrase for a minute. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. Again, an angel proclaims this birth to shepherds. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8, there were shepherds out on it, living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. There's an old man named Simeon who proclaimed Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2 and verse 34, Simeon blesses them and says to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. To be a sign that will be spoken again so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. And then this woman comes up. Her name is Anna and she proclaims Jesus' birth. The Bible says coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. The advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. How about one more? How about the wise men, or, or we call them the magi. <laughs> the magi proclaim his birth. In Matthew 2, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem to Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came from Jerusalem, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Are you starting to get the point? <laughs> the advent of Christ is marked by proclamation. But this is not the end of the proclamation. You can see a pattern of proclamations throughout the entire life of Jesus. And I would guess that maybe it begins with a man named John. John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist, as he is called. It's in the gospel of John as well. In the very first chapter, in verse 29, John is baptizing. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the proclamation. And then Jesus, when he calls his disciples, we read of what Nathanael says and we see Nathanael's proclamation. He declares, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Ironically, some of the ones who proclaim Jesus, some of the people who proclaim Jesus, most often in scripture are not people at all. They're actually demons. In Luke chapter four, Jesus is liberating a man from demonization. And there he is in verse 34, you hear the demon cry out, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And then more people are being liberated from their demonization in Luke chapter 4. And it says, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and wouldn't allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. And then Luke speaks of this one man who has a demon saying, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Huh. But one of the greatest proclamations is found in Matthew 16. And it comes from one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Simon Peter. Jesus asks his disciples, What does everyone say about me? What, what do they say? Who do they say I am? And the answers vary. Some people say, You're a lot. You know, I'm, we're not really sure. There's a lot of opinions. And then Jesus looks at them in verse 15 and says, What about you guys? What, who, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter speaks up and he says this. He says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Wow. Peter says it pretty straight there. Shortly after that, there's this voice from heaven that speaks up from a cloud. It says, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. All these people talking about who Jesus is, they're kind of filling up the bottom of our screen there. One proclamation after another after another until we come to Jesus and the proclamations that he makes about himself. And Jesus has things to say about himself. When he's just a little boy, 12 years old, he's missing, he's in the temple, his parents are looking for him. You can imagine how frantic he would be if you lost a little boy. And when they find him, Jesus says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? When he's there 12 years of age, he knows who he is and what he's doing. You find him making statements in common conversations. He's traveling through a region called Samaria. It's the middle of the day. He sits down by a well. There's a woman who comes there to get water. She, we call her the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And a woman says, in the midst of their conversation, she looks at Jesus and says, I know that Messiah, who's called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us because they've been having this theological discussion. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us, the woman at the well says. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. When he's in his own town in the synagogue in Nazareth, he reads from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Seven hundred years ago, Isaiah wrote these words down. And we understand he's talking about Jesus when he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the free, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After Jesus reads those things, they all know that's talking about the Son of God, the Messiah. After he reads it, he puts the scroll back, and he turns and he looks at him and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm he. I am the one from God. He proclaims that he is Lord of the Sabbath. The religious leadership is always on his case about what he's doing or his followers are doing. They happen to be walking through a field of wheat and they husk some of it up. They pull some of it up and they blow away the chaff. And of course, the religious professionals are on his case and they're saying, your guys are threshing wheat on the Sabbath and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're breaking the rules. And Jesus says this, he says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's impressive. He proclaims as well that he's one with the Father. The religious leadership is pressing him hard to proclaim his identity. And he says in John ten thirty, I and the Father are one. I had a Jehovah's Witness at my door one time. They don't come to my house anymore and that makes me sad. But I had a Jehovah's Witness at my door one time and I always treat them respectfully. I encourage you to do the same. As I was talking to this, this person, I said, could I see your Bible? Sure. I open it up to John 10:30, and where it says, I and the Father are one, their Bible didn't say that. And she said, I, you were looking for I and the Father are one. It doesn't say that in the right translation of the Bible. And I said, well, let's read the next verses. And in the next verses, they picked up stones to stone Jesus. You don't do that to someone that isn't committing blasphemy. And the Jewish people considered it was blasphemy to say that you and the Father are one and the same. And that is what Jesus was saying about himself. It is blasphemy unless it's true. And it was true. He goes on to say that he is the one who must suffer. He's telling his disciples about how the kingdom of God is going to come about. And you and I know in retrospect, the way it was to come about was that Jesus was going to go to the cross and die on the cross to pay the price for our sin and shame so that we could be free if we would turn to him and trust in him. We understand that. His disciples didn't understand that. And so as he's explaining it to him in, in the Gospel of Luke, for example, he says of himself, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he speaks of his actual crucifixion, saying the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Those are Jesus' words about himself. And he proclaims that he is the one who will pay for our sins, No one else is paying for our sins. He is paying for our sins. He's talking to his disciples about what true leadership means. True leadership, Jesus says, is servanthood. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Probably the one who's pouring your coffee, the one who serves. Jesus is making that point that leadership means servanthood. And he says this of himself, for even a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of John is full of statements about Jesus. In fact, it has what we call the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. (laughs) I'm your sustenance, he's saying. He says as well, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He goes on at another place and he says, he's the gate or he's the door. He says, I am the gate for the sheep. And then just a couple verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When he's talking to the family of Lazarus, who is dead, lying in a grave, in a tomb, Jesus looks at her and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though they are dead, yet will they live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now we hear that story and we think, well, yeah, we understand that someday we'll die. And then someday years later, the final trumpet, we will rise again and we'll be with the Lord forever. And that is true and that is important. And that can never be overstated. But there's more to being resurrected than that. There is a right now kind of resurrection that when you turn your heart to Christ, He makes you alive inside in a way that you weren't before. It's because of who he is that he does this. He says to his disciples, when he's getting ready to leave them, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back to take you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. In the midst of that conversation, in the midst of that speech that he's giving them to help them with their trouble, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the seventh of his I am statements are, is I am the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow, we're filling up the bottom of that screen with proclamation, aren't we? Let me give you another. When Jesus is on the cross and he says the seven last words of Christ, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Those statements that he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's one guy who's watching that. He's an outsider. And he's just watching this man die on the cross. He's a centurion. And this centurion, the scripture says of him, when a centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That's a lot of proclamations. That is one messy PowerPoint screen. It's full with so much information. And I would say to you, we have just touched the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. But I want to have you consider this next sentence. And this might be one of the more important sentences that I will make to you today that these proclamations have implications for you. Do you understand that? You can't just look at that and be a spectator. Christianity is not a spectator sport, it's not like world history. You know, I have friends that are maybe Civil War buffs, you know, or, or someone else that loves to study the French Revolution. And that's good, i am all have a good time with that. But understand that probably doesn't have implications for your life. These proclamations about Jesus are not just historic pieces of information so that you can go say, huh, how about them potatoes? But rather, they have implications for your life because of who he is and what these proclamations have said. You can't just ignore them. They tell you about God. They speak about yourself. Even when he says something like, for the Son of Man came to to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. That many is you and me. And when someone gives his life as a ransom for me, I can't just go, that is just really interesting. These proclamations have implications regarding how you get to heaven and how you live today. I thought of those seven IMs, and I thought we could probably draw implications from them. In fact, you could probably say that the realities of those seven IMs are explicit in the proclamations. For example, when your life needs substance, (laughs) you find it in Jesus. How do we know that? Because the scripture proclaims that he is the bread of life, that he is the substance of life. You know, when you look at the news or you read the news, you're on social media, you'll see people who are engaged in different causes, good causes, important causes. And then, does this happen to you? You look at someone who's involved in some cause and you go, really? That's where you're going to find your substance in life? doesn't matter though, whatever the cause is, I would suggest this to you, that more often than not, the reason we devote ourselves to any cause is because we feel like that gives us a sense of substance in our life. It makes our life worth something if we're fighting for something, if we're standing up for something, if we're speaking for something, if we're, if we're behind something. Now I have substance in my life. I think those causes are good. But I think that any substance apart from the bread of life is just the frosting. You understand? That you could have one of the most important causes known to man and if you were absent, the bread of life, the bread and butter of existence, then what? Would you feel your life was fulfilled? In the end, would you look back and say, I missed the main thing. I missed the main one. You see, if you are hungry for substance in your life, then look to the bread of life because he is the substance of life. And that reality is explicit in the proclamations. These proclamations have implications. If you need some light on the subject, you find it in Jesus. Don't know where to go? Don't know what to do? Don't know who to trust? Man, I really thought I could trust her. I can't believe she did that. Don't know who to believe in? Wow, I was really taken in by that guy. I I believed in him, and look at that. Don't know how to get from where you are to where you need to be because you feel like you're just walking around in the light, I'm sorry, in the dark. Then turn on the light. Better, turn to the light. Because Jesus is the light of the world. And you will find clarity in him. I have found clarity in him. The people around you who are trusting in him are finding light and clarity in him. And you can find it yourself. That reality is explicit in the proclamation. If you need to find belonging, you can find it in Jesus. He's the door. He's the gate to the sheepfold. And you can belong in that sheepfold with with people not just from Clearfield County, but for crying out loud, with people all around the globe for a time eternity past. You can belong with them. And you can come into that fold. And in that fold, you find togetherness and you find access to the Father. You find protection from evil. You find one who walks with you and talks with you. And you find a flock of like-minded brothers and sisters who you don't agree with about everything, but there is a spiritual connection there that wasn't there before, and you find shelter, and you find a life, a gate that opens you to new vistas, ones you hadn't even dreamed of before. That reality is explicit in the proclamations. You need leadership. you find it in Jesus. He's a good shepherd. He leadeth you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. He shows you where to go so you will find green pastures. He causes your cup to overflow. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And listen, if he would lay down his life for you, then you have to understand he would do whatever he needs to for you because he's a good shepherd. You're not sure which way to go. You're not sure what decision to make. You're not sure how to navigate the the social structure that's in front of you or the political climate you find yourself in or the economic chaos that you see in front of you or even just, I don't know how to get along with the guys at work. He leadeth you. He's a good shepherd. Look to him. Hm. If you need life, you find it in Jesus. He is the re- resurrection and the life. And that's not just fire insurance so that when you die, you can go to heaven. That is life right now. It is a life full of meaning. It is a transition from feeling from feeling dead inside. It is a transition from feeling stale and grasping at something to make you feel alive. A transition from that to, wow, it is so good to be made alive. When he created Adam... The scripture tells us he made him out of clay and he breathed the breath of life into him. And at another point, it was Jesus himself who looked at his disciples and the scripture says he breathed. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathes daily his life into your very being, giving you freedom from that stale, decaying existence. Releasing you from that paralyzing shame that just makes you want to make it to the end of your life so the shame ends. He can take that away when he gives you life. And he takes the guilt that you feel about stuff you've done He he just destroys that guilt and he makes that which is beautiful arise out of it. This reality is explicit in the proclamation's. And if you need truth, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And in a world that is marked by hypocrisy, (laughs) in a world that is full of false teaching, and has everything from fake news to fake friends, we got it all. Anything that is a lie, we have it all. Come and get it. And if you feel that way, there is one in whom there is no deceit. There is one who is the truth. There is one whose word is truth. There is one who gives you the spirit of truth. And you can go to him and uncover the truth. Not once, but every time you go to him. Because he is the truth. And that reality is explicit in the proclamations. And if you need love, and who doesn't, right? (laughs) If you need love, he is the vine and we are the branches. He is the trunk and we are the tree. That he is the vine and we are the branches doesn't make sense to you unless you've grown grapes, right? So let's just move it into Clearfield County and say, he's the trunk, we're the branches in the tree. That's what's going on there. And the trunk is that which gives life to the branches. It is that which sustains the branches and gives nutrients to the branches and makes you alive physically and emotionally, and spiritually. He lovingly enables you to bear fruit, fruit that will last. So the cause you may be behind, as we talked earlier, that is here today and gone tomorrow, is irrelevant because he gives you fruit. The scripture says it, fruit that will last. And he continually sustains you, in all the storms of life because he is the kind of a tree trunk that isn't going to let go of branches and isn't going to lose its hold on the ground because he loves you. He will never let you go. He gives you the means to live. He gives you the means to laugh. He gives you the means to to cry well. He gives you the means to move through pain. He gives you the means to love through his loving provision for you. Because he's the trunk, you're the branches. And that reality is explicit in the proclamations. You know, if we wanted to, we could fill this whole bottom of the screen with things. We could just go on the next level and the next level. We could fill it with the whole screen with symbols of of what God came to proclaim. But we can nail, nail it down to one thing. He just came to, say that again, Steve. We can boil it down to one thing. He just came to proclaim who he is. This is who I am. And this is who you need. And because of who he is, that proclamation means everything. He is the God who came to reach out of the ivory palaces into the world of woe. Only his eternal love would ever make him go. He is a God who came to love to love you just as you are, and to embrace you, to mold you and form you and cause you to grow. And he is a God who came to proclaim himself. And that proclamation has great implications. So we will join him in that process. We will love because he loves. And we will reach because he reaches. And we will proclaim who he is because he's called us to do so. I'd like to pray that we would be able to do that, especially during this Christmas season. So if you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together and we'll pray. Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your eternal love, that which you've given us. We are so thankful that you reached down from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to reach us We are so thankful that you revealed who you were, who you are. You are intensely relevant to our lives. Thank you for proclaiming yourself to us because we desperately need that. May we proclaim you and what we discover from you and about you for others. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.